Hi friends, this is Jason Drum, one of the pastors at Canyon Bible Church of Prescott. Just wanted to make you aware up front that this sermon audio is incomplete. Uh, as many of you experienced, this last Sunday the power went out during our service, and while Andrew finished preaching the sermon without the assistance of amplification, the power outage did cut the recording short. We hope you're helped by these recordings. We look forward to continuing together with you in God's Word in the days ahead. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and while you're doing that, I guess I've got a new job. I'm supposed to say something about 8 to 10-year-olds every week, all right, so let's, let's practice, all right? I may forget this in the future, but 8 to 10-year-olds, just know that at this point, you guys can stand up and go. You're dismissed. See, you're doing it already. Wonderful. As you know, we are starting our new 8 to 10-year-old class this morning. At this point in the service, I'll be dismissing our 8 to 10-year-olds each Sunday just before the sermon. Any of you who wish to continue keeping your kids here with us are welcome to do that. Those of you that want your 8 to 10-year-olds to participate in their class, you can do that as well. The thing to make sure is that you have them signed in before this point so we know who they are once they arrive at the class. And then again, afterwards, you can pick them up in the art room back there at the top. So. Normally, Lord willing, every Sunday I'll get up and say, 8 to 10-year-olds, you're dismissed. And if I ever forget, 8 to 10-year-olds, you're dismissed, okay? <laughs> All right, there we go. Thankful for that ministry. 1 Samuel 1 through chapter 2, verse 10 is our passage for the morning. This is the, the new book for us. So we just completed an almost two-year study of the Gospel of Mark now we come to this book in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. This is the last genre that we've had as a church, Kenyan Bible church, that we haven't touched yet, Old Testament history. We've hit the law. We went through Genesis 1 through 11. We've hit um, some of the writings. We did, uh, some, uh, we did uh, book three of the Psalms. We've done a couple gospels. We've done some epistles. And so we've still got here uh, Old Testament history, and we're going to go through 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel has 31 chapters. Mark has 16. We did Mark in two years. We will do 1 Samuel not in double the time, but in half the time, Lord willing, which means that I'll take a little bit more of an overview approach, but still we'll kind of get down low and look at the flowers too as well. But for the most part, it'll be kind of a flyover, but I want you to get the big picture of what God is doing here. It's a fascinating book. Um, I think you'll be greatly encouraged by it. Uh, our text is rather lengthy this morning, so I'm actually going to read it as I go through and preach it. But I've entitled this message, Hope Out of Nowhere. The first part of the book of Samuel, and I would argue that it's nicely divided up into three parts. The first part of the book of First Samuel is about Samuel, the prophet. And you'll see why that's gracious of God in a moment. But I'm calling this whole series, this first part of 1 Samuel, uh, chapters 1 through 7, the prophet that God provides. The prophet that God provides. You'll see again in a moment that God raises up a prophet graciously. These people, get this straight, these people don't deserve God to be speaking to them. They don't deserve it. They're, even the, the, the community of God, the, the nation of Israel, is a rebellious people. And you'll even learn about some of the priests that were leading the people. God's Word isn't deserved here. 
God's gracious to provide a prophet. He'll do that with Samuel. And then, interestingly enough, in chapter 8, which we'll get to down the road, in chapter 8, the people are kind of dissatisfied with Samuel the prophet, and they want a king to rule over, them, rule over them, a king like the other nations have. And so the people turn away from God's messenger, and they look for a king. Well, we're going to be introduced to that king, King Saul, and he's rather pathetic. But that's who the people want, who the people think they need. And then God classic God is a God of grace, and even when the people turn their backs on Him and they want a king like Saul, God will give them a king after His own heart to shepherd them well, and that's David, the the third part of this book in 1 Samuel. So it's an adventure. It's a phenomenal book, and I'm excited to be going through it with you. If you're a new visitor here today, welcome. You've come on a great day. We're starting a new book of the Bible. At this church, we go uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible. We want to give you, give you an understanding of what these books mean. We want you to understand the context of what they mean. We don't want to, so want to kind of grab a random passage in the middle of some book and talk to you about it. We want you to see what's leading up to it, what comes after that. Basically, we want you to know the Bible because God speaks through His words. We want you to know God. We want you to know God through His words. So welcome today. We're glad you're here. All right, the book of First Samuel. As I said, hope out of nowhere is the theme for this morning's passage. Those of you who have been um, children of maybe divorced parents, you might have asked yourself in the past, or you might be asking yourself now, how does God's will get accomplished in a mess like this? Those of you who have longed to be married and haven't been married and want to be married might ask, how does God's will get accomplished when I'm in this situation? Those of you who have been laid off by jobs, those of you who have looked at the state of the world, there's always this constant question, how in the, Lord, how in the world is the Lord going to work through this? Well, you could say that at the opening of 1 Samuel. How in the world is the Lord going to work through a mess like this? 1 Samuel is written during the time of the judges. How many of you have read the book of Judges before? Yeah, it's a rather depressing book. Uh, I, my men's group a number of months back, we were going through Judges, and we'd just read a few chapters and then come back and talk about it. And we'd read it and kind of look at each other going, this is depressing. Like, where's the hope in this book? In the book of Judges, you've got leaders raised up and they fail the people, but God still determines to care for His people. You've got the cycle of sin going over and over again, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and they rebel against God. And then you see His grace, and they repent, and then they sin again. In the book of Judges, you've got rape and the murder of women. It's a mess of a book because it's a mess of the actual world at that time, specifically the nation of Israel at that time. It was a mess, and this is the context of the book of 1 Samuel. This book was written during the time of the Judges. Where, as we learn at the end of the book of Judges, it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's not a commendation. That's a criticism. That's a problem. When everyone does what's right in their own eyes, this is the type of world that you get. And so, we come to 1 Samuel, a book written during the time of the Judges, and you would expect more and more chaos. But God does something here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Why? Because God's a good God. God's a gracious God. God will work out His will in His way, in His time, for His people. You could really say that might be the theme of 1 Samuel. 
that God works out His will in His way, in His time for His people. And His people don't always respond well. Sometimes they do. And that'll be the adventure before us. So God works in consistent and unusual ways. So God, uh, you'll see this, as God raises up a prophet, raises up a messenger, He does it in ways that are consistent throughout the rest of His redemptive history, but they're still kind of unusual ways. And again, we'll get to that in a little bit. For this morning's outline, I want to outline the text this way. Four unexpected ways God works His will for His people. Four unexpected ways that God works His will for His people. At the end of the book of Judges, as I told you, there's this statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's clear from the scriptures that authority is a good gift from God. Now, authority can be abused, can't it? You've probably seen that in your own life, abusive authority, whether it's at the hands of the government or or teachers or coaches or parents, there's abusive authority. But authority in and of itself is a good gift from God. And here in the time of the judges, there's no authority in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And as it says at the end of the book of Judges, there's no king in Israel, no leader. So really, the book of Judges ends with what's going to happen next? What comes next? And for Samuel in the Hebrew Bible is what comes right after the book of Judges, not Ruth like in our English Bibles. First Samuel comes right after Judges. Here's what happens next. What's God going to do about this situation? What's He going to do? How is He going to work out His will? So let's look first at the first unexpected way that God works His will for His people. Found in verses one, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. God works through hopelessness. This is how God works His will. When it seems hopeless. I think there's great encouragement in this section. Let me go through, read a couple of verses, and then comment for you. <clears throat> Verse 1, there was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country in Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So right away, I want you to see this. We end judges. There's no king. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And normally, when you have a genealogy in Scripture, it's focusing you on someone. Well, here we have a genealogy. We learn about a man, Elkanah. Literally, it means his name means God created. So at the beginning of 1 Samuel, again, coming off of judges, there's no king, no ruler. It's a hot mess. And then we come here to 1 Samuel, and God, there's a man named God Creates oh, maybe God's going to do something through this man. But very quickly, the man we see isn't the focus. We're introduced to his wives. Specifically, one of them becomes the focus. So God's up to something maybe through this man, but all of a sudden we focus in on his wives, and then as we see, we'll focus in on one of the wives. God's going to work in ways that are different than we usually work. He had two wives. Now listen, don't get hung up on that too much. It's an Old Testament reality. It was a sin, and a lot of people in the community of God, the nation of Israel, had multiple wives. So were they in sin? Yes, they were. If we transported the nation of Israel back then to here, and they followed us around for a week or two, they might see some things that, oh my goodness, you do that? How in the world can God bless you? 
this is the nature of Old Testament Israel here. This man had two wives. Back then, especially in the nation, especially in this theocratic kingdom, to pass along uh, your heritage, to have an heir, because the nation of Israel was so important to God, was, was His people meant to represent Him, it was important that they keep populating, repopulating. It's important they keep growing and multiplying if they're going to represent God to the rest of the world. So when you've got, when you marry someone, if you're a man, you marry someone and she's barren, you think, I've got to have an heir. So they would, they would sin to get an heir. So maybe there, there's, a, there's a good purpose and a good goal. We need to continue this believing community, but they'd sin in how they went about that. So that's all I'll say about that, but he had two wives. He's still pictured here as a, as a faithful man to God. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So there's a hopeless thought there, no children. Despair, sorrow, difficulty. Today, when people don't have children, it, it's still sorrowful and sad. But again, in that context, it was even multiplied. Verse 3, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The capital of Israel wasn't Jerusalem yet, it was Shiloh. And this man would go up year after year to sacrifice. Again, the the authors portraying this man as faithful. Goes to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, verse 4 continues, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, and he goes on. So you see how those two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they're kind of just inserted real quick, and then we keep going. Oh, you'll get to know them. But the author of 1 Samuel, we don't know exactly who it is, the author of 1 Samuel is highlighting for you, this is the time when Hophni and Phinehas were the leaders of the sacrificial system in Israel, in Shiloh. Now, just to fast forward and give you a preview, just because I want you to understand the context of this, turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 15, I wonder what it's like to be under the leadership of Hophni and Phinehas. Well, when people would come to sacrifice, Hophni and Phinehas would evidently take more meat than they were supposed to and rob the people who were offering sacrifices to God. Notice verse 15, we'll pick it up kind of mid-thought. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant, so these two brothers had a servant, who would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force in the name of these priests. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now stay there. Keep going down actually to verse 22. Look a little further down in chapter 2. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's enough. Go back to chapter 1. That's the leadership in Israel right now. Robbing the people who were there to worship Yahweh, and then having inappropriate relations with the ladies that came to the tabernacle to worship Yahweh. That's the kind of leadership we find ourselves in. Not surprising, this is the book of the Judges continued. That's where we're at. So this man used to bring his family, go up once a year to Shiloh to sacrifice. Back in 
chapter 1, verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So Elkanah is sacrificing these animals, and he gives enough meat to everyone in the family to have enough to eat. He's a generous man. He cares for his family. Hannah has no children, but he gives her more. He loves Hannah. Hannah was evidently his first wife, and she was barren, so he then went and found another wife who could produce children, but his heart was with Hannah. Notice why she's barren, verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. It's not the demon of barrenness. It's not Satan. The Lord had closed her womb. The Lord has a purpose for this. The Lord knows what He's doing. The Lord's sovereign. Verse 6, and her rival, Penina, the other wife, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because, stated again, the Lord had closed her womb. So Penina used to mock, provoke, make fun of Hannah because she was barren. She had no children. Verse 7, so it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used, Penina used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, going up yearly to the house of the Lord, this is a time of celebration. You could say it this way in the, in, in the new, with New Covenant language. When Hannah went to church, she was weeping. Year after year, goes up to worship, and she's weeping and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He's trying to comfort his wife. He cares for his wife. And he's trying to comfort her by showing his love to her, but that doesn't satisfy. She's without a child, and she's mocked for it. This is a sad woman who appears to be at a place of hopelessness, although Hannah responds. Hannah worships the Lord. We'll see Hannah's faithfulness here, but this is seemingly, as, as a reader of 1 Samuel, this is seemingly a hopeless time. It's a hopeless situation in Israel. These priests are horrible. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. This is a horrible time, and this woman's barren. You've got a faithful husband, evidently, uh, at least a, one caring for his family and worshiping the Lord, but then a wife with no ability to bear children. And I'll, right at the beginning, I'll say this. A hopeless situation is a perfect circumstance for the Lord. It's often the place God starts. When you feel at the end, when you feel alone, when you feel hopeless, when you feel like you're in despair, when you feel like nothing good can happen, when you feel like, does anybody understand me? That's often the place when you get to the bottom where God starts to work. This is classic Yahweh. This is what He does. I want you to think about this. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, listen, from you, I'm going to make a great nation. There's only one problem. His wife couldn't have children. She, like Hannah, was barren. But what did God do? He birthed a child from Sarah. God gave Abraham and his barren wife a child. So from you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You're going to have children. I'm going to start a great nation. From you, you're going to have children. Your wife's barren, doesn't matter. I'm going to make this happen. And then they have a child, Isaac. He has a wife. 
God's going to continue this family line. He's going to keep his promises. There's only one problem. Isaac's wife, guess what? Barren. And God causes her to become pregnant and she has a child. And then one of their children, the one where the the line is going to go through, leading to the Messiah, they have a child. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's wife, barren. God still keeps his promise and he brings children, he births children, ultimately leading to the Messiah. And how is the Messiah born? To a virgin woman. Listen, when it seems hopeless, God is still in control. He's all-powerful. I, I want some of you to hear that because you feel hopeless today. This is how God works. Dale Ralph Davis, a writer who you'll hear me refer to a lot in the coming months, says this, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. That is so true biblically. This is how God works. Are you without hope? Notice Hannah. If you're without hope, notice Israel. Are you without hope? Notice God. He's doing something. There's a second unexpected way God works His will for His people. God works through despair. So God works through hopelessness. God also works through despair. You see that in verses 9 through 19. I want you to see, real quick, just kind of do a flyover of these verses. Notice the emotion of Hannah. Notice verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Go down to verse 15. It says, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. Verse 16. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So in this section of verses, 9 through 19, we hear of Hannah's distress. She's troubled. And God's going to determine to work even through that. As she goes to him in prayer, as she goes before him in worship, he's going to pay attention to her and remember her, know her, understand, provide for her. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, so they go through the festivities of worship, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So you've got this woman who goes to the Lord to pray. The, the, the formal ceremonies, the celebration, the eating of the festival is done. She gets up and goes to the doorpost. There was this temple, tabernacle-like structure in Shiloh where the people would come to worship. And Eli is the one who's sitting at the door, which was a sign of leadership, judgment, ruling, So Eli's sitting there. Again, we know his children. We know what they're like. But Eli's not painted in the most positive light also in the pages to come. But Eli's sitting there. He's noticing this woman who is distressed and weeping bitterly. Verse 11. And she vowed a vow. She made a promise to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, all-powerful God, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. What's Hannah doing? She's saying, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you. Quite a statement. If you give me a son, I'm going to see to it that he takes the Nazarite vow, the vow that says he is put into service for you. The signal would be that this 
person wouldn't have a razor touch his head. He'd have long hair. We know elsewhere in Scripture that they wouldn't touch wine. They're devoted to the Lord, and this was a sign for that. So she's saying, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. So, so she's kind of mumbling these prayers, can't be heard, but, but her heart's speaking. Her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out, and Eli is a witness to all of this. Before Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I'm not drunk. I'm just troubled. I'm sad. I'm sorrowful. Then Eli answered. He hears her. He understands. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. Now, in God's way of working, God spoke through Eli. So it wasn't just Hannah hearing from Eli saying, go in peace and the God of Israel will grant your permission, like, hey, good luck to you. No, no, he's actually speaking on behalf of God. Hannah understands that. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So before she wasn't eating and she was sad, Now she is eating, and she's no longer sad. Evidently, those words that Eli spoke meant something. She understood that as a promise that God was going to answer her prayers. Notice it says, let your servant find favor in your eyes, there in verse 18. The the name Hannah means one who finds favor. So Hannah is using kind of a play on words regarding her own name. Let the one who finds favor find favor in your eyes. Verse 19. Verse 19 says, They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, had, was intimate with her, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. <clears throat> so the picture is they're worshiping, they're done with the festival. They stay one more night, <clears throat> they rise up, they go home, and they do what married people do, and she conceives. The Lord's answered her prayer, and the language of the text means that it happens pretty quickly. She cries out to the Lord. She's greatly distressed. She's in despair. She's anxious. In fact, the leader of the priests thought she was drunk. She's in such despair, but she's trusting in the Lord, going to the Lord, praying to the Lord, and the Lord answers her prayer. He hears her. God works through His people's despair. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers. This is in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Uh, we've been troubled. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Even wishing to go home to be to heaven, it was so hard. This ministry of the Apostle Paul and his, his fellow workers And he says in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We felt as if we were despaired to the point of death, but we relied on the strength of God, the same God who raises the dead. There's similar language there to Hannah going to God. She's in despair. She's weeping. 
She's sad. She goes to God. And again, I want to highlight that God often works through his people's despair. Do you remember in Exodus 3 when God calls Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? He says to Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. God listens when his people are in despair. God listens when Hannah's in despair. God listens. His ears bent toward his people. He understands. And see Hannah in despair but going to God. She worships her way through this trial. She has a hard time going to, the, to this place of meeting every year because she's mocked and she has no child and she's in despair, but she still worships. She still prays to Yahweh. In this passage, Hannah isn't shaking her fist at God. She's still trusting. Even through despair, she's trusting. You could say it this way, Hannah's a theologian here. Hannah's despair drives her to worship, drives her to understand God, and she does understand who God is. It's interesting to see how God will wound His people and then use them. He will allow them to go through suffering and trial, and then He'll use them. 2 Corinthians 1, this God who comforts us in our affliction means for that that comfort that He gives us to be what we pass on to other people so that we can comfort them in affliction. This is how God uses His servants. Think of all of the heroes of the faith. Moses, Hannah, Isaiah, Jesus, Paul, all the apostles, all of them wounded, despair, lives of difficulty to be used for God's kingdom. He will work through His servants who are in despair. So, for those of you in despair, go to God, keep talking to Him, keep pouring out your soul before Him, and ask Him to use you even in your despair. Trust Him, be used by Him. I think there's also some application here for the church. There are people who weep bitterly. There are people who are in sorrow. Let's not be the Eli's who look and go, oh, what a drunk woman. No, no, no. Her heart's hurting. Her heart's hurting. We can withhold our judgment for a while. What's wrong, Hannah? How can I pray for you, Hannah? What's discouraging you, Hannah? What do you need, sister? What do you need, brother? Let's be careful to not be Eli's who think we know what's going on so quickly, all right? But Hannah's pleading to the Lord. She's in despair, and God's going to work through this. There's a third unexpected way that God works His will for His people, found in verses 20 to 28 of chapter 1. God works through stewardship. This is so interesting. God works through stewardship. Hannah's going to return something to the Lord, and God's going to use that gift to bless the nation of Israel. What is that gift? It's her own son. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Samuel meaning asked of God, which is pretty interesting when you come to chapter 8 and you have the people ask for a king. So Hannah asks, for, asks God for a son. God gives her a son. Her heart's in the right place. These people in chapter 8, their heart's not in the right place. They want a king, not like Yahweh. They want a king that looks like the rest of the nations. So they ask something else. 
and they get some other kind of king. But this is a good gift here, Samuel. She has a son, names him Samuel because she's asked of him for the Lord, from the Lord. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So this is another year now. She has a child. Time to go to the yearly celebration. Time to go back to Shiloh, pay their vow, offer their sacrifices. But Hannah did not go up. Is she having second thoughts here? She earlier promised him to the Lord, but now the next year after she has a child, she's not bringing him to the Lord. No, she's not having second thoughts. She's just nursing her child. It's not time yet for her to hand him over. But Hannah did not go up because she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. She's going to permanently give her son to the one who gave her a son. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took, it, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Here's what's happening. She nurses him until probably about three years old. He's about three years old. She brings a bowl, a three-year-old bowl. She brings a large amount of flour as an offering to the Lord. A skin, or you, you could say bottle, case carrier of wine, and brings Samuel and these offerings to the Lord at Shiloh. And it says here at the end of verse 24, and the child was young. He was around three to four years old. Think about this. Moms, dads, dads. 